The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International. As I stood at the edge and looked into the clear moving water, I felt the presence of Christ with me. I believe that in his great mercy, Christ met my father that dark night, wounded in mind and spirit, lost and sick and helpless, and carried him home. Coming up, Sheila Walsh explores our deep-rooted longing for God alone. I'm Sheila Walsh. Welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. You know, I'm the kind of writer who writes about what I want to know more than what I already know. A lot of people write as experts on a particular subject, but I find in my own life it's, it's a hunger to understand more. And that's really why I began writing The Longing in Me. I remember one evening I was sitting in an arena, 16,000 women. I was about to go up and speak. I was in a good place in my life. Um, I love the privilege of doing what I was doing. But I said, Lord, why is there still a place inside of me where there's like an ache? And I felt as if the Lord said to me, Sheila, don't try and get rid of that place. Don't try and anesthetize that place because that place belongs inside the life of every believer. It's a sacred ache. It tells you you're meant for more. You're not home yet. Maybe you experience that in your own life and you think, if only I was married, if only I had a child, if I just could get that job. And sometimes you get all these things and then you think, well, why do I still feel the way I feel? You know, everything in life is, is, is good. It's all going smoothly. But there's just this little place inside of me that longs for more. I've learned to really treasure that place because it reminds us that there is a place inside of us that's made for God alone. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today. One of the things about the life of King David that I think I admire more than anything else was he never tried to grasp power or to hold on to power. His basic thing was, if God's done with me, I'm done. And if he's not, there's nothing anyone else can do. To come to that place of faith and trust in God is a place of great peace. So let's take a look at that in the life of King David. My father had a beautiful voice. One of his friends once told me it was the kind of voice that made you want to love God more. His favorite hymn to perform was the 90 and 9. After my dad's death, it was very hard for my mom to listen to that hymn. I dreaded seeing that number appear on the hymn board in our church when I was growing up because I knew it would make my mom cry her way through it. And honestly, it wasn't the crying that was the hardest part is that we never really talked about what happened to my father. It was just something terrible that had occurred in the past, and we'd moved on. I didn't even know where my father was buried. Years later, 
I flew home to Scotland to try and put back together the missing pieces from the puzzle of my early life. Though I wanted to honor my mom and not stir things up, I desperately needed some closure for myself. So I visited the place where my dad's life ended. When I was five years old, my dad was hospitalized after suffering a massive brain aneurysm. The doctors allowed him to come home and continue treatment with speech and physical therapy. But over the next days and weeks, his personality began to change. He would get angry and strike out impulsively. And after that, he would put his head in his hands and weep. Dad eventually ended up in the locked ward of an asylum. A short time later, he managed to escape one night. He took his life in the river that ran behind the hospital. My sister, brother, and I were too young to attend the funeral. And after that, we never talked about my dad ever again. We certainly never talked about what happened that night. So when I flew home, I didn't even know the exact spot where he was buried. It was a cold, damp day as I drove the rental car through the gates of the hospital to the parking area. I got out of the car and pulled the collar of my coat up around my neck to keep some of the bitter wind away. I made my way through the grass down to the edge of that river. I don't know what I was looking for. Understanding, regret, sadness. I have no idea. But what I didn't expect to find, hope. As I stood at the edge and looked into the clear moving water, I felt the presence of Christ with me. I believe that in his great mercy, Christ met my father that dark night, wounded in mind and spirit, lost and sick and helpless, and carried him home. What did my dad long for that night? I'm sure just one thing, home. In that homecoming, he finally learned that the love of God is far greater than his wounds, far wider than his desperate wandering. In the deep, quiet stillness of our heart, we long for God and God alone. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we know nothing else will do. I've traveled around the world during the last 30 years and spoken to more than 5 million women. I've listened as many of you have graciously shared parts of your life with me, and I see a common thread running through our stories, the longing and the ache for more of God. We all have longings, and though some lead to greater heartache than others, we're all the same. None of us is alone in this universal need. Jesus came because we are all messed up, not because some of us are more messed up than others. As God's love daughters, we need to be shaken to our core until we begin to grasp the price that's been paid for our redemption. Perhaps then this world will see what God's love looks like by the way we treat each other. We live in a day when young people are leaving the church in droves. Could it be that our hypocrisy in chasing things other than Jesus has sent them running? Unless we've been radicalized by the cross, 
we will inevitably be radicalized by something else, whether it's money or relationships or status or even our own brand of holiness. Only the cross calls us higher, yet it takes us to our knees to live a life of self-denial while elevating the needs of others. Only a vision of the greatness of God causes us to relinquish our pursuit of things and instead to kneel at his feet. During his lifetime, David watched his kingdom rise to the heights promised to Abraham. He defeated vast armies and watched God interfere with the plans of those who attempted to take him out. But then David allowed his longings to lead him into the kind of sin that caused death and devastation to others. Yet Paul said, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. As we've turned through the pages of David's life, we've seen sin, but we've also seen humility, worship, trust, hope, repentance, strength, and love. Perhaps the greatest gift of David's life to us is his absolute trust in the goodness and mercy of God, no matter what raged around him. David's story reminds us that it's not how you start in life that matters, but how you finish it. We left David deeply repentant for his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Yet even in judgment, God showed mercy. A man who sleeps with another man's wife should be stoned according to Mosaic law. When you add complicity to murder, there would be no reprieve. But God spared David's life. However, the long-term consequences of David's sin would be devastating. God would hold David accountable, not just as king, but also as a father. The seeds he had deliberately sown would bear disastrous fruit in his home. Because of what he had done, God would cause his own household to rebel against him. I'm sure that for the rest of his life, David regretted that one night stand with another man's wife. Let's take a look at the consequences of those choices. They are the type of judgment we associate with the Old Testament. It's tempting to camp out in the grace of the New Testament and think that because of the sacrifice of Christ, we no longer face the consequences of our sin. But that's simply not true. Christ's sacrifice provides forgiveness and restoration of peace with God. But as you know, certain decisions carry consequences with them. The first tragedy was the loss of the child Bathsheba carried. One commentator I read said, the pain of that was removed when she gave birth to Solomon. Only someone who's lost a child knows that's not true. Of course, David and Bathsheba, who were now married, loved Solomon, but nothing, nothing erases the pain of a lost child. Well, the next event in David's family is particularly troubling. Two of his children, Absalom and Tamar, brother and sister, had the same mother. Amnon was also David's son, but he had a different mother. Amnon lusted after his half-sister Tamar. He tricked her into believing he was ill, and once she was in his room, he raped her. By this violation, Tamar's life was essentially over. She was disgraced. She ran to the one she trusted most, her brother, Absalom. 
that for two years, Absalom did nothing. He didn't address the sin or even speak to his brother. He waited for his moment to avenge his sister. I'm tempted to wonder, where was David during all of this? If you have two sons that don't speak a word to each other for two years, I think you would notice. I wonder if David didn't want to have his own mess thrown back in his face. Well, two years later, Absalom threw a feast during sheep shearing time. He invited all the king's sons, but asked David specifically to send Amnon. David was initially reluctant, but Absalom begged and pleaded until David finally said yes. Amnon was the eldest son, and so by rights, the crown prince next in line to the throne. But as it turned out, he wouldn't live to see mourning. Absalom told his men to wait until Amnon was drunk and then kill him. Absalom escaped to his grandfather and stayed with him for three years. So we have the death of a child, the rape of his daughter by her half-brother, and the murder of that son by his brother. The seeds of rebellion had been planted deep because an even greater crop would grow. A brother avenging the rape of his sister is something that I think any of us can understand. But Absalom, he had a lust for power and control. He determined to overthrow his father and make himself king. Absalom ran his own political campaign, beguiling the people. When David heard about the uprising, he knew the people were coming after him. And once more, he had to run for his life. He walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning, a sign that everyone could read. King David was bankrupt. Only God knows the reason for all those tears. Tears of regret, tears of betrayal, tears of loss. During that time, David wrote these words in Psalm 3. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. But you, you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. Here David models for us how to live. We worship God and we long for him alone. When nothing else makes sense, we thank God for who he is and how he loves us. We cry out to the heavens and declare the Lord watches over us. He is our shield. He is our defender. He is the one who holds our head up high when we want to simply bury it in a pillow. The truth is that no matter how things appear and no matter what we feel, God is in control. Think about one more thing. David was a powerful, charismatic king and a great warrior. So don't you think he could have rallied all of Israel to come against this rebellious son? This is a profound lesson on what it looks like to be a person after God's own heart. Under the rabid rule of King Saul, David never fought to be king even though he was the anointed one. Now, as king, he refused to fight to keep the crown. David refused to fight for power. His bottom line was, 
If God is through with me, then I am through. If he's not, then no matter what anyone tries to do, God will vindicate me. What a powerful place of rest and peace. More than God's power, David desired his will. That's when you know that God has really been moving in your life, where you don't just pray for things, you pray for Him. When you want His heart and His will more than you want things to work out well in your life. I think that's the progression that we see through the life of David, that he learned that God is trustworthy. He learned that as a little boy in the fields, and then he had a few missteps, but toward the end of David's life, it was so clear to him, the greatest longing we have is for God alone. Well, this is the last um, session of The Longing in Me, the last opportunity to send this teaching tape to you. Um, I'd love to send it to you, The Longing in Me. It's good for group Bible study, or maybe you just want to even do it by yourself. But also, I'm very excited because this is our first week of mission feeding. Ugh, I cannot tell you what it was like to be able to actually land on African soil and take my very first trip in Angola to be able to see. I mean, I, I sit in the studio and I watch with you on television and I see the amazing work that James and Betty have done throughout all the years. I've watched them with these bowls of food. But to, to be able to be the one who sits there and, and actually physically gets to feed these children was, was just remarkable. I, I just want you to know, when you do give, it actually goes to where you hope it goes. You know how sometimes you wonder, does that really get there? Absolutely it does. And to see the look in the eyes of these children, they're so patient. When we were there, it was hot and they had to line up all around these trees for a long, long time. And they stood there so patiently, never moved. But there's another side, um, there's another side to life in Africa. We get to see the difference that mission feeding makes, but we actually get to see what happens when we didn't get there soon enough. I actually talked to James in this piece because I was standing in a place that no mother ever wants to stand. And, and James had stood there before. And I think it's out of that heartbreak that we bring this important week of mission feeding to you. I think you'll see what I mean. Watch this. here and just what is a small part of a massive graveyard. I've never seen anything like this in my life. But this part that I'm standing in, um, these are all children. And the thing that has touched us as a team so deeply is the way that the parents have tried to honor their children in some way by leaving something on the grave, whether it's just, you know, little booties, um, a little toy that meant something to the child. Some parents have literally, all they had was like an empty water bottle, but they just wanted to leave something to say, this is my child, um, and they were loved. And James, you'll remember being here. I mean, you were here, and you'll remember the impact this place had on you. What would horrify you is how it's grown. Dear God, I'm in the midst of a thousand children's graves. 
Most of them didn't have to die. They died like this little kid here that didn't have the nutrition. We're told that millions face death right now in Southern Africa, where I'm kneeling in the midst of children's graves. We're on the edge of such an epidemic again. In fact, just behind me, they've dug four little fresh graves, and there's, there's no children in them yet, but they're getting ready because they know they're coming. And that's why we're here, and that's why we need to do something now. We need to be able to go into these villages and feed these children and bring hope to these parents so that these four little holes back here stay empty. We need your help, and we need it now. You know, while we were there and we were filming, just after I finished talking about that, I saw this truck approach and we backed away out of respect because it was another family um, bringing their little one to be buried. So there was only three graves left. The thing that is just overwhelming to me is how fixable this is. You know, sometimes you watch situations in the news and you think, this is overwhelming. There's nothing we can do. This is not that. We can do something. And the amazing thing is so little does so much. We want to be able to feed these children. Can you imagine having to put your child in a grave simply because you couldn't put a meal in their stomach? And that happens. I sat with these mothers and fathers where night after night after night, one mom said to me every night, I, after I put my child to bed and she's already buried one child, she said, I, I pray Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I looked down at my child and they're starving. Here's the good news. You and I can change this now. Do you know that for $30, you can feed three children? I mean. That's ridiculous, $10 a child, $50 feeds five, 100 feeds 10. Here's what we want to do. If, do you know, if you can give, and some of you can, $1,400 would feed a whole school. But I got some amazing news um, this week. Some friends and partners of life who are very committed to our mission, who understand our hearts, some of them have actually been there themselves, said, listen, for this mission feeding, we'll double every gift, up to $400,000. So that means if you give $30 to feed three children, you'll actually be feeding six children because they will double your gift and make it 60. The more I spend my life and my heart and my time in the Word of God, there's so many themes, but the theme that comes through all the time is care for the poor, feed the hungry, give water to those who are thirsty. And Jesus said, when you do this, for the least of these, you actually do it for me. Perhaps as you look at your life and you, you look at your family maybe sitting around and you think, God, you've given us amazing things. What could we do? Here's what you could do. Jesus gave it to us in black and white. If you'll do this, you do it for me. So I'm asking every single person, I make no apology. I've been there. I've seen the difference it can make. Let those three graves remain empty because you and I decided to do something in Jesus' name. In remote and impoverished villages of Africa, children are suffering, desperately in need of life-saving food, facing death by starvation. 
Life's Mission Feeding Program is there, ready now to feed and care for children in crisis areas of Angola, Mozambique, and Sudan. With all of our previous reserves gone and Angola facing a record food shortage due to crop failure, we need to immediately replenish our funding and supplies for our feeding programs. As an answered prayer, a group of Life's friends have set a $400,000 matching gift challenge for mission feeding. This means your gift today can have a double impact. $30 for three children will be double to help feed six children. $50 to help feed five children will be double to save 10 children. And $100 for 10 children will be double to help feed 20 children. And don't forget, your $1,400 gift to sponsor a school will now be double to feed children in two schools. With your gift of any amount, we'll send you Without Rival by author Lisa Bevere. With your double impact gift of $100 or more, please request the complete illustrated children's Bible. Finally, please consider a gift of $1,000, which will now be double to help feed 200 children. And you may request our beautiful majesty bronze sculpture. Please call, write, or make your gift online today. You know, this little baby cries because he doesn't know me. He, I'm a stranger to him. And that's natural for a child to do that when they don't know who it is. But we hear the tears of a lot of them that are crying because they haven't had anything to eat, because they're starving. We want to wipe those tears away for those children. And will you please join with us? We're here now, a place where the children have been fed, and they're dancing, they're laughing, they're playing like children should be. And yet, crying like that, there's so many that are starving. And some of them are too weak to cry because they don't have the energy anymore. Please help us. Join with us now. We love you, we care about you, and we want you to care about these babies that we're showing you today that need our help. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please do it now. Don't put it off. I know you're busy, but it's easy to forget. So if you just go to your phone or go to lifetoday.org and make the best gift possible. And when you do, this is the last time we can offer you um, the Longing in Me DVD. And if you go to thelongingandme.com, there's other resources and we have a study guide as well. We have lots of other gifts, but I know you don't do it for the gifts. I know you want to make a difference. So I, I thank you in this first week of mission feeding. I pray that the next time that the team and I land in Angola, we see a shift there. It really is a national epidemic. It's a crisis situation. But you and I can bring so much hope in Jesus' name. It's my prayer that your longing for him would lead to a longing to reach out in his name and impact the lives of children all around the world. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time on Wednesdays in the Word.
After dancing with Prince and helping Buffy slay vampires, Robia Scott now explains how her life was filled with counterfeit comforts tomorrow. Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.